Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Today on the program, how educators are approaching the topic of climate change in the classroom. We'll hear from two retired high school teachers about their efforts to bring the next generation up to speed on the science and solutions, as well as the policy issues related to global warming. Our guests will be Pauline Seals and Roland Sayer. That's coming up next on Planet Watch. Stay tuned. And we're very excited to have the news for you first, the news about various scientific breakthroughs as well as some news about climate change. So starting us off, um, I'm going to have a short story for you uh, from Science Daily. So imagine a future in which every home has an appliance that pulls all the water the household needs out of the air. Well, today when it's raining in California, you can imagine that you wouldn't need that, but in a dry desert climate, you would. You can do this using only the power of the sun. That future may be around the corner with the demonstration this week of a water harvester that uses only ambient sunlight to pull liters of water out of the air each day in conditions as low as 20% humidity, a level common in arid areas and yes, even parts of California. The solar-powered harvester, reported in the journal Science, was constructed at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology using a special material, a metal organic framework, or MOF, produced at the University of California, Berkeley. Fascinating, huh? You can actually... I think this mic needs to come up. Hello, hello. Ah, there we are. (laughs) Yeah, great story there, Rachel. And uh, she said pulling liters of water out of the air... For those of you metrically challenged out there, uh, a liter is, you know, sort of like a quart, <laughs> a little bit more than a quarter of a gallon. Um, but hey, I got a story which kind of follows on to that because it's also about uh, arid climates. Well, her thing was for arid climates and anywhere <laughs> that has any humidity at all. Uh, but this is about the desert in particular. And uh, man, it's one of the best things I've seen in a while, as far as creative thinking, uh, this wall business that we've been hearing too much about, <laughs> the U.S.-Mexico boundary is the border in the world with the greatest disparity for dwellers on its two sides. There are horrific differences in access to clean water, healthy food, and jobs with livable wages that currently divide Mexican and U.S. citizens. Those are the real issues that need an unprecedented and lasting solution, or else any plan for the U.S.-Mexico line will not solve a single thing. So, okay, here's a report out of the Arizona Daily Star, and that's a proposal. They're going to have a conference on the University of Arizona campus to bring together thought leaders from both countries, U.S. and Mexico, to discuss options to this wall proposal. Homero Arigis, the renowned Mexican poet, environmental visionary, and indigenous rights advocate, will introduce the concept of a more just, wildlife-friendly, and job-creating wall of solar panels. Should you presume that this option is merely wishful thinking, pie-in-the-sky diversion from more viable options, look again. The proposal has not only gained attention in the Wall Street Journal and Huffington Post, but it's also being supported by solar power investors. And I am myself what you would call a small investor in solar panels, solar power. So the director of a research center at Columbia has done the numbers to a degree that the president's border team has not accomplished with its own proposal. 
One string of solar panels along the 2,000-mile border would generate about 2,000 gigawatts of electricity, while generating more jobs and costing far less, maybe a billion or so plus in site preparation costs, than other current proposals. It's being designed to be wildlife-friendly and culturally sensitive. Here's the possibility of resolving the disparities in energy and food security along the border by investment in an agrivoltaic border collaborative. Heat-sensitive food crops could be grown under the solar photovoltaic arrays, as they are now done at three Tucson schools and at a demo project at Biosphere 2. Rainwater could be collected off the solar collectors to irrigate crops for use at nearby schools, clinics, and homeless shelters in rural border communities. Almost done here. <laughs> uh, I can't get enough of this. Hope you're in the same mind frame. Endangered wildlife would be allowed to pass under or above the solar panels, but holding back off-road vehicles of any kind or size. Indigenous and other rural communities could gain protection against drug traffickers, but they might also have better access to renewable energy, fresh food, medicine, and satisfying jobs. So let's collectively plan a vision for the border that bridges us rather than one that further divides us. And of course, now I'm really curious about this design, but hey, go check it out. Arizona Daily Star. Great story, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, really great story. Um, we've got a, another one that talks about how connected we all are. Um, the dust from as far away as the Gobi Desert in Asia is providing more nutrients than previously thought for plants, including giant sequoias in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. A team of scientists, including several from the University of California Riverside, found that dust from the Gobi Desert and the Central Valley of California contributed more phosphorus for the plants in the Sierra Nevadas than bedrock weathering, which is the breaking down of rock buried beneath the soils. Uh, phosphorus is one of the basic elements that plants need to survive, and the Sierra Nevadas are considered a phosphorus-limited ecosystem. So a good side to <clears throat> desert dust blowing across the world at us. Yeah. Nice. And finally, California continues to be in the news due to a historic superbloom of wildflowers spawned by record rains. The miles of poppies and other flowers are so abundant around the Central Valley and Carrizo Plain that they have been seen in satellite images from space. And the four-year drought that plagued our state is officially over. They say that surface water in 2017 has provided plenty of rain to trickle into the state's dams or water reservoirs, filling them to above-average levels, as many of you noticed during the Oroville Dam near failure. And with the snowpack being 30% above uh, records, it's a going to be a good year, except for the possibility of some severe flooding when the sun indeed starts to melt all that snow. But uh, a blessing in, in many ways, but also extreme weather in others. And for those of us who have seen many, many extreme weather events in California, this one appears to be racking up to be one of the record years um, for a long, long time. And we're getting a little more today out here on the West Coast, Central California. It's uh, for When we came in, it was kind of a frog strangler. I think it might be uh, backing off a little bit right now. All right. So um, making a quick segue from super blooms to people who bloom after they retire as teachers. Uh, Pauline Seals is one of those people who was a teacher for a number of years in high school level. And Roland Sayer, who's with us as well, and both of them um, were in the classroom for many, many years in high school, teaching high school science courses, which 
If any of you took one when you were younger, or maybe you're in one now if you're listening and you are younger, you know that science can often seem disconnected from everyday life. And maybe, you know, you'll do some fun science experiments at home, but seldom does it actually reach the level of hands-on. These two have developed a curriculum that they're going into schools with to teach about a very difficult topic, both difficult scientifically and difficult in terms of emotionally. It's about climate change. So welcome to the two of you. Why don't you tell us just briefly about your project to bring this information to local high schools? And Roland, we'll start okay. with you. Actually, I was a uh, teacher of social studies. And of course, uh, everything about uh, climate change has uh, political and economic and legal and emotional aspects as well, in addition to the scientific stuff. Um, so usually the way we proceed is that uh, Pauline presents the basic science and uh, just a brief outline and then we ask students to start doing their own research because that works much better in terms of teaching and learning. And uh, so we have then some exercises set up where they get to uh, look at how does global warming or climate change affect other uh, teenagers around the globe so that it's easier for them to relate to these other stories. And uh, then we uh, uh, have a little unit on how hopeful it is or how little hope there is. And so they get to check in with their own feelings. Because if you talk about climate change, you invariably hit that spot where you feel powerless or hopeless or disgusted or angry, whatever the case may be. Uh, and... Is that pretty much it? Did I omit um, something? There was a few details, and since I yeah. didn't memorize it, but since I have it up on my computer, <laughs> so um, the one of the first things is using uh, climate.nasa.gov, which is an excellent website where the kids have to explore, answer questions, and they are interpreting data. They're not just looking for words; they're interpreting putting data on graphs in different formats. So that's good for them in a few ways. Related to carbon dioxide levels, temperatures, Arctic ice, land ice, sea level, glaciers, ocean acidification, and more. And the climate makes a role, uh, which um, Roland already mentioned, where they relate to other students, other, pe other people that have difficult lives due to climate change. Um, they actually interview each other and make notes and then answer questions. And this is to get a real feeling for people's lives and the fact that it's a worldwide problem. Then we have a sea level rise activity where they uh, use a website and find out the predictions for sea level rise up through 2100 uh, approximately. Uh, and current science may actually make things worse than it appears on this website. But the discovery goes through New York, Miami, New Orleans, Bangladesh, and finally looking at local areas. The truth is Santa Cruz will not be as badly off as any of these other places, but it's home and the fact that it's going to be affected at all, people relate to that. Oh, yeah. 
Ocean Flats. Oh yeah, downtown. Wow. The boardwalk. City Hall. My <laughs> yes. So, um, so that's good. Um, we also we found a, a demonstration which um, uh, the first time. The students had looked at this on the website, and then we did it live. Um, the teacher found with her second, there were there were three classes here, so there were three. Um, can't remember the th three different classes. So um, the teacher experiment, and she found doing it without even having them see the video was very good. And this is where there are two balloons. One's filled with air, one's filled with water, and you take a lighter or something with a flame, put it under the one with air and of course it pops instantly but if you put it under the one with water you can leave it there for i don't know as long as a long time quite a long time 30 60 seconds and nothing happens because the water is conducting the heat away and water has a huge capacity for absorbing heat and that's a very inherent part of climate science what's been happening and what will happen so the kids love that. And that is a way, excuse me for interjecting, but that is a way for you to try to demonstrate why it's happening on the scale and the speed it's happening. Is that correct? Because the oceans take longer to heat up than the atmosphere. Right. Okay. The oceans take longer to heat up, but also they are heating even though slowly. They also hold they've it right longer. Right. Yeah. So this is a difficult topic. I mean, clearly, scientifically, it can be difficult, but not as hard as perhaps it is for them to accept that their lives will have to change. How do you deal with that part? I mean, to me, that's the trickiest part of all, and we deal with it every day here when we think about the good news and the bad news. Um, sometimes there's not a lot of good news. There's some. How do you direct them to, to the emotional side and, and give them some hope that this is solvable? Well, we suggest that they pair up and talk directly about how what they have just studied makes them feel and so they talk about oh this is oh, makes me feel hopeless or we can't do anything about it we're powerless and often combines with young people having the sense that I'm just a teenager I can't do anything I can't make any changes um, and so it's really important for anybody to uh, have a chance to express how we feel about climate change. And only if we can do that can we uh, uh, get to a more clearer thinking about what uh, should be done, what, what has to happen. So how and does that work? They say, I'm feeling hopeless. What do you say then? <laughs> right. What's well, the next step? We don't, we don't listen into. Uh, their uh, pair conversation. But then uh, we have a sheet of uh, paper with all kinds of things that are either hopeful or uh, that make people feel hopeless. And then they have to list the top three hopeful items. They, they, it's easy to look th things up on the internet. That's where we draw them from. And um, then we have a debate. And then eventually... Uh, after they have done some work, which is another important part of how to deal with climate change, uh, we come somewhat to the realization we are the carriers of hope. Human beings are the ones that carry hope. You know, politicians 
maybe they, they hit something right, like our governor does some good things. There are even some Republican governors that do some good things. But really, the hope resides within each human being. And so that's where they eventually come to when they do the studying, when they feel, oh, I know more than 62% uh, of the United States teenage population. Yeah, it's, it's a shocking uh, piece of information. Only 38% of teenagers in the United States get proper education about climate change. That's, that's explaining a lot because my husband teaches at university and says by the time they get there, they think... They, they do know a little bit, but they think that, you know, things like recycling, that's all we need to do, and then we'll be safe. So there's a lot of work to do. That's why you're doing what you're doing, I assume, because um, there's a lot of educating to be done. Um, and so what grade levels what, what, what grade levels are you two uh, mostly dealing with? And, uh, oh, I don't know, how often are you going into the schools? And is this sort of a routine that you invented? Or are, is, you know... That's three questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You only get one. Sorry. The first one was... I forget. No. <laughs> if you forgot... How so often? Today. Not often. What enough. grade level? What grade levels? <laughs> grade level. Um, whatever. But I think we've been mostly working with high school. Because yeah. that's your background. Uh, that's what you teach. That, that's our background. And... I think this material is a little bit more suitable. We did work with a sixth grade at uh, Kirby School, and they had a little difficulty with some of the activities. So yeah. if we did it again at that level, we'd make it slightly simpler, yeah. which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. As it was, we, we were busy and didn't have a lot of notice, so we tried it. Well, the teacher said he thought it would be okay, but that wasn't 100% true. I always ask this question, but why do you think that 62% of high school students are uninformed about the science or the other issues concerning the importance and maybe urgency of global warming? Because the teachers are teaching the same curriculum they've been teaching, that they were trained on. They have neither the um, mandate nor the time and resources to easily incorporate all this kind of thing Along with everything else, they're still expected to get kids ready for college, etc., um, and it, ready for standardized tests and so on. And so, fitting this stuff in right now requires an extraordinarily dedicated teacher. And while there are some, some of them have other lives. And we, we know of uh, one particular teacher at Santa Cruz High School. She's a great teacher of environmental science. And she works her butt off. And so environmental science itself is not just climate change. It's just one part of climate change. So, you know, I, my hat is off towards all teachers, uh, even the ones who are really dedicated to conveying this information. It does seem a bit strange that you're preparing people for their future and then the future could be radically different. You know, if you're planning yes. that your life is going to be exactly as it is now, that's not what the science is telling us, that even with lots of action, our lives are not going to be the same. Right. Even if the best case scenario is where we're living in an all alternative energy world, um, we're going to be living differently, even with the technology. If that's the answer, we're going to be living differently. The jobs will be different. So it's really like turning on a dime. It, whereas this has been coming for a while, we haven't reckoned. 
that we need to turn on a dime. I personally feel that the young people are far more flexible in this than the older people. I think the young people are not stupid and they're not stuck in a certain rut and they can tell that what we've been doing is not really totally working. Well, we happen to have a, someone who I still consider a young person. Tommy is our intern, and he has not crested 21 yet. Am I right about that? Oh, you, no, I have. You have? Okay. <laughs> you just look youthful, but you're, you're right around there. Yeah. So you're not too long out of high school. Um, how was how is this resonating with you when you're listening? Yeah, it, I definitely remember having a slight difficulty connecting the things that my teachers were trying to convey and making it a real world kind of connection because I never had anyone really come in and try and do what you guys are talking about, you know, kind of compare it to the situation around the world. But I did have really good uh, teachers on environmental studies and science in general, but I think it definitely gets kind of lost in the curriculum that they have to get through to the kids. Yes, and then, of course, we do have to reckon with the political facts. Uh, the Heritage Foundation is now sending to every science teacher in the United States uh, texts and other materials to convince them that climate change is a hoax and whatnot. That's so, astounding that, that it, some organization would spend that kind of money because that's got to be quite huge. expensive, um, promulgating flat falsehoods and asking them to be taught in our schools. I mean, right now... Right now, we go send our children to school assuming they're going to be taught real science, not that someone's going to pull out a textbook, someone mailed them for political reasons and start teaching junk science. I mean, that would be a disservice to the children of this country, just teach them false information. And I'm hoping that, like the teacher you were mentioning who got this book, that they made really good kindling out of it or a book, you know, <laughs> a stand for their plant. Because it's about worth that much. That's my personal opinion about, you know, what if someone said the earth is flat and, and they spent money handing a book to every single science teacher in the United States. Are they going to teach the earth is flat just because they got a free book? I hope not. Mm. Seriously. Do you, do you have a question for these folks, Tommy? I th thought maybe you were going to, since he's a, f you know, former student or is a student at the Cabrillo uh, Community College level, but uh, not long ago was a high school student. Yeah, since you guys have kind of taught um, a bunch of different ages, um, I was wondering if you see a trend in yeah, younger people to be more uh, open to new ideas and possibilities of combating climate change. The students at SoCal had enough time, which is rare, but they had enough time to learn some of the science background deal with some of the feelings, work, find out about some potential solutions, and then work on their own presentations. And I've seen about eight or nine of the presentations so far. <laughs> and I was really impressed with the quality, the, the um, sincerity with which it was presented and the details and, and how much the kids really, really get it. Do you think that maybe kids could help teach their parents and older generations? And That's... Absolutely. They, they have to. I mean, they, they, uh, um, their, their minds are still more flexible than many adults. 
and uh, we've seen how quickly the students, once they get the basic information, uh, take the ball and run with it. Hmm. I remember students at uh, Santa Cruz High came up with brilliant ideas that are right common sense. You know, they, they, we asked them to imagine that they were uh, the city council and what uh, would they come up with in terms of solutions towards mitigating or um, uh, adjusting to sea level rise in Santa Cruz. First thing, right off the bat, they said every student should have a bus pass. <laughs> uh, bicycling should be facilitated much more than it is now. Yeah. Uh, and there should be Every student should be getting this information. They said, you, you guys, meaning Pauline and me, you should come and, and speak to a whole uh, school congregation assembly. Seriously. And, you know, didn't take them more than getting the information. <laughs> they, they got together in, in these mock city council groups, <laughs> and that's what they came up with. What a great idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, you know, part of what uh, interests me in having you folks on is, uh, I mean, you're doing this wonderful heroic job here as you did when you were professional working teachers and are now doing uh, afterwards. But I'm hoping that other teachers and, and other just citizens all over the country who are listening in <laughs> will be inspired uh, to and will realize that hey, here, here's something that there's a need for, and it's very satisfying and rewarding and very important work. And that's what I want you to comment on at some point here shortly is how whether there are those rewards to you. I'll just share you a little story from my I, uh, ever since I came out here in the late 70s, uh, rode the train across the country from the East Coast to be a grad student up at the university. I, I've been going out into the community. Uh, I must have given, I don't know, 350 talks in area classrooms way back then. It was the nuclear arms race and world hunger and, you know, the ozone layer, which I was studying at NASA Ames. You don't hear much about that anymore. We'll talk about that someday, but science solved that one. <laughs> and, uh, but, but then more recently, climate change and renewable energy. And, but one of my favorite stories was as I was leaving an elementary school classroom, I think it was up in Scotts Valley, uh, I had been tell talking to him about stars. That's another thing I talked to him about, astronomy and stars. And, and uh, as I was going to the door, they're all saying, goodbye, Mr. Jordan, thank you, thank you. And uh, as I was reaching for the door handle, a few kids came up and swarmed me, and a couple of the little guys were tugging at my pants leg. <laughs> they didn't want me to leave. Now, that was a satisfying experience. But what I'm wondering is, you know, do your teachers that you're working with and the students, uh, do they make it clear to you that, hey, this, this blew our minds, this, or at least this really opened our eyes. We uh, really appreciate this, that you're, you're doing wonderful stuff here. Well... Um, I was a little self-serving for our own purposes. Uh, I went to Harbor High to a uh, econ class, economics class, and afterwards I asked the, the teacher and the students, would they be willing to write me a little feedback? And they all did, and it was just really rewarding to, to hear them say, yes, this was very useful and, and uh, everybody should hear about this. And, you know, I was thinking, well, we'll use these testimonials to promote our, uh, our business. Our, well, it's not business, it's volunteer, but our uh, task. 
And yes. if you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin. And we're here talking with Pauline Seals and Roland Sayer, who are both retired high school teachers who teach about climate change in the classroom. And they have an organization that brings various speakers and curriculum two classes that are already in process. So if you have a question for us, you can write to us. You can either comment on Facebook. We are streaming live video, so you can see what shirts we're wearing. Um, there'll be a quiz at the end, what color's my sweater. Um, and you can write to us through email if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment to our guests. And it is Radio Planet Watch, all one word, at gmail.com. Radio Planet Watch at gmail. Com. Hey, you know, another question for you is, um, what about uh, sort of problems uh, and then solutions? Uh, I am pretty sure that you folks agree that uh, people can handle a really bad situation and a problem much better if they at least feel like they can do something to alleviate the problem or maybe even solve it. Uh, and in your presentations, do you go into, you know, what, what can we do? Now what? Absolutely. One of the student activities is uh, based on the Stanford Solutions Project website where the students collect information from that. And that is a prelude to them picking topics that they're going to research for themselves and make presentations on. So, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, you have to have, it, even in the, the very, very shortest presentation, there has to be a minute or so at the end about hope and solutions. And in something like this, which was um, two, three or four class weeks, there has to be a significant portion on solutions. Mm -hmm. Hey, by the way, just a random interlude here. We've got to clear a couple things up. Uh, Pauline, you're from uh, the UK, right? You're, you're a Brit, <laughs> as I think most of our listeners <laughs> probably can tell. And uh, Roland, let's see, must be Germany, maybe Austria. <laughs> okay, Germany, all right. Okay, got that cleared up. Uh, Thanks again for coming. I can, I can uh, give a more general uh, four-step uh, program how to deal with this. Uh, as I said earlier, it's it's really important for everybody to allow themselves to feel the feelings that will come up from just living in this world. Uh, every every uh, living being that is being extinct, or all the trees that are uh, that have died in the in California from the drought, uh, we need to mourn them. And we need to tell somebody who is willing and able to listen uh, how hopeless or powerless we feel. And we also then the second thing is to appreciate that which we still have. Uh, this is the best uh, place that we know of for human beings in the whole universe. And it's worth fighting for and be grateful for what we have. And the third thing is take action which we can't do unless we're informed. So those two things go together. And the fourth step would be to persevere. Because as we act, we will run into opposition and disappointments, and then we have to go back to step number one. We need to express to somebody who is willing and able to listen how disappointed we are, and then be grateful and take more action and persevere. This is sounding like uh, what I was hoping that we would get into, and I think now's the perfect time. Uh, 
namely some events coming up uh, that are not only in our area but all over the country and all over the world <laughs> just in both of the next two weekends uh, uh, they're called marches and that sounds kind of like fighting <laughs> you know marching armies <laughs> armies for truth and uh, you folks are involved as are some of us and lots of other folks uh, in organizing and uh, Pulling these things off, I'm actually going to be in D.C., Washington, D.C., at the two big marches for science on Earth Day this coming Saturday, the 22nd, and then the following week, uh, the big People's Climate March, which I hope will have even more people than the big New York City march that had 400,000 people a couple of years ago. But uh, there's something going on here, and as an example for people listening for events in communities across the country, uh, what can you tell us about what's cooking for uh, these next couple weekends uh, and you know just let's talk about marching <laughs> well the April 29th event in Santa Cruz is probably more about the rally than the march although the march will be a feature uh, there are excellent speakers lined up um, our assemblyman Mark Stone will be there our um, favorite politician Fred Keeley will be there um, T.J. Demos of UCSC and Dr. Susie Moser, who is an excellent speaker and worker in this field. There's also going to be various kinds of music interspersed with the speeches and the marching. So, and bunches of people tabling. So that's going to be a big local event here. And hopefully many other places across the country are going to be doing the same thing. And we've been trying to organize these kind of things that... You don't have to use the carbon flying across the country. Um, well, or, I got family back there anyway, so. Well, so, <laughs> so, so you're combining we'll a, a trip, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But um, for some of us, that, that would not be um, a very smart thing to do. And yet, do we just sit here and go, oh, yeah, that's nice. They had a big thing there. No, we can really do something. We can really be a part of the national movement. So that's what that's all about. What are the differences between the 22nd event and the 29th event? Could you? The 29th was designed to be the 100th day of the Trump administration, and I believe it was announced first. Then somebody got the idea they should be defending science, which is certainly not a bad idea, mm -hmm. and that they would coincide it with Earth Day, which is climate science strongly related. Um, which wasn't a bad idea either, except this happened to put these things exactly one week apart. As far as I'm concerned, they should have combined them. But never mind about that. We'll deal. So, in Santa Cruz, the um, Earth Day March, Science March, will be fairly short. It'll be about half an hour short march from City Hall to Earth Day and then there'll be a rest of the day thing on the San Lorenzo benchlands with lots of lots and lots of activities for children, lots of local organizations, etc., etc., all organized by Ecology Action. So um, they're different but strongly related. So the 29th is the March for Science? Is that no. correct? No. That's the climate march. 29th okay. is the climate Got march. It. So the 22nd. March for Science is the 22nd. It's pretty unusual for scientists to get out and march. Let me just mark this moment. <laughs> this is not what they usually do. They usually are incredibly apolitical for the most part. They're in the labs doing good science. 
Um, that alone should get people's attention. Why should scientists feel the need to say that we need science when the whole world we're living in is based on it? And that's there must be something big happening in our culture, and um, a pretty big dissing of science process to be able to even get these people out of the lab. So I just wanted to remark upon that because you just, they really, it takes a lot to get some of these quiet, studious types to don a t-shirt and hold a sign. So um, that ought to get people's attention. This is not your usual suspects. And it's not the usual march because they're saying we need to fund science. We need to keep the doors open to collaboration uh, internationally. So. You know, I have this image of the March for Science. It's like a Gary Larson far side cartoon. A whole bunch of people with glasses and pocket protectors and white lab coats all marching down the street. But hopefully it's going to be, you know, really fun and interesting and colorful and diverse. And, you know, it doesn't have to be scientists. It's people who care about science, which is closely akin to reality. And speaking of which, by the way, uh, one of the news items we could have read, I'll just read this as a preview, but this is very encouraging. There is a House Democrat named Don Beyer, B-E-Y-E-R, who is calling on experts to correct the bad info pushed by the Republican majority. So he's got a, he's fed up with the anti-science nonsense now dominating hearings of the House Science, Space and Technology Committee. And he has launched a project to make it easier for scientists to set the record straight. So stay tuned for more on that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so... Well, we see. have um, somebody who might chime in in the last few minutes of this conversation who teaches at the college level who just walked in, so maybe you could get on this mic. Um, Steve Coulter, my husband, teaches at UC Santa Cruz, and he teaches in the writing program, and brilliantly, the writing professors, a lot of them, have decided they're going to make this the centerpiece of their process of teaching writing. So you might have heard us earlier talking about how to talk to high school students when you get them, by the time they get to you, what do you notice about their science literacy about global warming? Are they knowledgeable or not so much? Well, these are university students, and they so a lot of them have been in advanced science courses or environmental studies courses at their high school. So I would say that most of them have a, a fairly, a reasonably good knowledge of climate change. Um, but they don't know about it in any depth, and it's probably true that they haven't explored, in, in fact, it's almost invariably true, they haven't explored any of the, well, let's say the political or social ramifications of climate change. Um, they might have studied the actual physical processes, but, you know, it's the nature of high school courses that they're siloed, that there might be an environmental studies course, but it focuses on, you know, the actual physical mechanisms of carbon and, and the temperature change and it doesn't it doesn't say anything about how we might have to change our economic system or how we might need to change um, uh, how do we approach this psychologically or spiritually it, it they don't they haven't had that sort of background before um, to think about it in a more you know comprehensive from a more comprehensive perspective so if you could encourage these folks to do anything which they're already doing a ton they're going into high schools and trying to say this um, what is the missing piece you'd like to see um, emphasized over, you know, including the sciences? If you were listening, it sounds like they do the emotional side. I don't know if they do the political side. But. I don't know. It's That's a really tough question because, I mean, my courses really focus on how, um, well, Naomi Klein's idea that capitalism and combating climate change are inherently incompatible. 
which means that we are really looking closely at capitalism as an economic system and what effect it has on the planet. Now, that's some pretty controversial material for the high school level, and I don't think many high school teachers would want to venture very far into that, or they might run into trouble with that. I don't really know. I mean, maybe they could answer that question, but that's that's where that's how we go at it. Because the university, of course, allows in the high school classroom teachers in general, at least when I taught there briefly, um, are discouraged from really grappling with controversial questions because the parents will be calling up. Um, the opposite is true at the university where students are encouraged to really grapple with controversial questions and the professors are oftentimes uh, well, are, are more or less free to be opinionated at the same time of course to Im allow all kinds of different opinions um, from the students because they're going to come from very diverse backgrounds but um, in order to encourage critical thinking and to write an interesting paper you have to do something you have to challenge their the way they think about the world so Great. Any final thoughts on that? Um, unfortunately, we kind of brought you in at the last part, so we'll have you back maybe with your colleagues to talk more about this part of the equation, like whether you can come in and say, hi, we're in a planetary emergency. I mean, you're not supposed to say these kind of things as a teacher, and yet later on they're going to go, why didn't anyone tell me? Mm -hmm. Like, why did they keep this such a secret? <laughs> I'm afraid. Well, it was, it was a good... Uh, uh, thing to see how passionate the students were uh, at Santa Cruz High who said this is something that the whole school should know and every student should every year uh, be exposed to this information and also every student should have a bus pass. I mean these are strong political statements uh, and at um, Soquel High, we were gladly surprised that several groups of students, not just one or two, uh, tackled the topic of uh, a carbon tax, which is something that I think needs to happen. You know, we, we're subsidizing fossil fuels and that should be removed and instead we should price carbon uh, the, the, uh, realist, in a realistic manner and a carbon tax would uh, help in a great way. And Tommy, uh, we had a question come in. You want to read that to us? We, we have a few minutes left and then we're going yeah, to move to Yeah, I'm going to read that segment. and I'm going to first segue from what uh, Roland just said, the carbon tax thing. <laughs> Another item that preview for coming attractions is that British Columbia has long been a champion of a carbon tax and it's been very successful, but they've suddenly turned around, had a huge bad turnaround politically up there, and now they're just going full-on fossil fuel mania. So, well, we got to, you know, check into that. But um, one of the questions as far as what can we all do about this stuff, I mean, uh, the science of, yeah, the climate problem, but what can we do? Well, one of the things we could do, and it's only one, but it is a huge thing, is solar energy for hot water heating, even space heating, and electricity. And the question that came in is, um, this is from Eugene in Ohio. Uh, do any high schools or other schools in the Santa Cruz area have PV installations? PV is photovoltaics. It's solar electricity. Photo for light. Voltaics like volts for electricity. So it's light to electricity. Well, the answer is <laughs> they didn't used to until I actually got going on this. Uh, one other person and I originated uh, what are now like at least a dozen big solar photovoltaic electric projects on schools in Santa Cruz City and county schools. And uh, 
I'm not sure, though, whether the teachers, I didn't make any money doing this. I wasn't doing it to make money. I was doing it for educational purposes, and we had monitoring systems. But I've heard that a lot of these places, the teachers don't even know now that those systems are on the roof. And I'm not sure whether they're using them in the curriculum. I should get with it and check on that. But anyway, <laughs> the stuff is there. The schools are generating greener, greener electricity than they used to. So anyway, that's one thing we can do. But what do you, what do you all think about you know, practicalities like that? Want to talk about CCL? No. <laughs> we'll save that for another show. It's a big topic, and we, okay. we probably uh, don't have time for it now, but we will promise to bring someone on from that project. Um, I just want to uh, reflect on the comment about um, the politics. Uh, we have also been involved in reading Naomi Klein and have a lot of um, colleagues who were very into the anti-capitalism thing. And I would hesitate to state that in that explicit of a manner in a high school as a paid teacher or a volunteer for the, exactly the reason you said, that, that high school teachers do have to be sensitive to that because the certain of the parents will be calling in and very, very upset. And it's better not to go there. It's better to do the good you can do by suggesting and implying rather than hitting it full face. Good point. Can I comment on that? Uh, in one class, I suggested that we do look at the topic of uh, car a carbon tax, and so the students were provided with texts that spoke for and spoke against it, and then we left it to the students to evaluate and decide on which side they would come down. And uh, that's one way of of uh, high school teachers dealing with it. But you have mm. to make sure that you. Uh, provide access to information from both sides uh, of any topic. Unless the other side is saying something unscientific. There, that is right, not another right. side. So you have to be careful. So my thought back to the book that was sent around to everyone is why not bring the book into the classroom as a media literacy or political exercise and have them look at the science and what's wrong with the book. <laughs> I mean, the science teacher should be able to debunk the junk science, and if they can't, they shouldn't embark on that exercise, but it could be a teachable moment. The problem is the teachers mostly do not have up-to-date good textbooks to compare. Hmm. And so that's not kind of a fair game, really. Okay, good point. Um, and the textbook can't possibly keep up with the new information that's coming out in the scientific journals, because we could barely keep up week to week. We look at science news about climate change, and it's happening fast and changing rapidly what we know. I mean, they keep revising. Oh, well, we don't think, you know, the permafrost melting is that big of a deal. Oh, next week, <laughs> it is worse than we thought. So, again, you can't really put that in a textbook without it becoming obsolete very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to thank you. We want to save our last five minutes for our um, ephemera phenomenon um, that we usually do. And um, thank you for being here and doing what you do. It's a volunteer labor of love, and I hope you continue to do what you do for a long time until that 62% of high school students who don't know about climate change have at least heard about it. Don't know or don't have uh, accurate information. Yes. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you, you for being much. Roland Sayre and Pauline Seals. Thanks for being yeah, and here. And stick around. We're probably going to need your intellectual firepower for our oddball stuff here in the last seven or eight minutes. Um, Today's Easter. We haven't made mention of that yet. Happy Easter, everybody. And um, 
just in case you missed it a couple shows ago, uh, I'll review the interesting astronomical fact about Easter. You know, how do you calculate the date of Easter? Turns out it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. (laughs) And, well, there it is. The moon was just full a few days ago, and the equinox happened, you know, back in uh, mid to late March. So here we are. Um, And uh, also, we usually provide an answer to last week's quiz. (laughs) And uh, does anybody remember what that was? If you, I mean, this was in connection with falling objects. But, hey, basically, if you just take the odd numbers and add them up one by one. You keep adding the next odd number, first one and then one plus three, which is four, and then one plus three plus five, which is nine, and then you add seven, you get 16. I was asking what is that sequence of numbers that you get? One, four, nine, 16, 25, 36. 36. Do these numbers sound 49. special? <laughs> Do they, what, Squares. 64. Oh, hey, hey, Tommy just said it. Squares. <laughs> Did you figure this out just now or in the entering, uh, intervening week? Oh, yeah, just now. <laughs> well, great, yeah. So, so the total distance. That's, see, in each successive second, an object falls the next odd number times the original second's distance. And, you know, so if you add them up, uh, the, the total distance that something has fallen is proportional to the square of the time, the number of seconds. Uh, this is in the absence of air resistance, of course. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, let's see here. Um, well, what about the palindrome? Oh, oh, yeah, that's another one. We had, a, we had a palindrome. Maybe that was two, two sessions ago. So here we go. Now, I'm going to let you write this out uh, again. It, and I only did the first. A palindrome is a word or a sentence or whatever phrase that is spelled the same forwards as backwards. And you ignore the spaces. And so I've given a bunch of them, you know, like, Madam, I'm Adam. And most people don't realize that Madam in Eden, I'm Adam. It's also a palindrome. <laughs> Madam in Eden, I'm Adam. Write that down and you will see that that's palindrome. But anyway, here's the long one. Here's the longest one I know. But I'm only going to give you half of it and you write it down and you see if you can reflect it and figure out the rest. So here we go. Doc note, I dissent. A fast, never p. <laughs> I'm going to pop my P there. P. P is the pivot letter. That's the center of the palindrome. Doc, so never Doc, note, I dissent. A fast, never, and then the letter P. And now just reflect everything back. Forget about the spaces. I'll give you just, you know, 15 seconds to do this. While you're, while you're doing that, I'll ask you another question for next week. <laughs> Why is a manhole round? Of course, nowadays we should call them person holes, I guess, but why, why is a manhole round? There's a very important, functional, simple reason for that. Can you say that on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, okay, you it's ready for the uh, Steve over there, uh, our college uh, climate educator, <laughs> environmental educator. He's still working on it. Can still come back to him before the end okay, of Okay, I'm going to just give you the answer now. Aww. Okay, ready? Still working oh, 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 yeah. well, work it out. Still working it out. No, 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 You can plug your ears and and go out of the room or whatever. Okay, well, here we go. It goes like this. Doc, note, I dissent. A fast never prevents a fatness. I diet on cod. (laughs) So that whole thing is spelled the same forwards as backwards. You just need a mirror. Maybe. Put a mirror up to it. 
Yeah, I'll probably still. Uh, well, the work. letters, some of the letters, a lot of the letters would be backwards. So mm, but it would possibly help. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you, Joe. Now we could use that on other people and, and cocktail parties and such and baffle them and show off how smart yeah, we are. Yeah, this is what we call party facts. Uh, <laughs> party in my class, I, I teach climate classes sometimes over at San Jose State or, you know, renewable energy classes at Cabrillo or Gavilan College. And I always like to spice them up with what I call party facts for my <laughs> students. So, <laughs> so, there you go. Good. And any final things to leave us with in the pa final minute or so that we have left? Any well, uh, of the let's day? see. For the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be doing a, a little different here. We, we haven't figured out <laughs> yet. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, on Earth Day, the day of the big march, uh, I have a good friend who did small wind power systems in Morocco in the Peace Corps. He uh, now works with MIIS, Monterey Institute of International Studies down south, which I think is now allied with Middlebury College out of Vermont. And he is putting together a youth a youth forum on climate for Earth Day, but he's looking for somebody who knows a lot about climate and at least has some kind of a scientific background to to speak. And I'm telling him, well, everybody's going to be out marching, but if you anybody out there or anybody in here might be able to help, he might have a bit of an honorarium for you or something. But but we'll be I'll be reporting from back east on those two marches, and we'll do that by phone or Skype or something, and we'll we'll get some good more great guests in here like our honored guests today. And again, thank you all, and it's been great to chat with you about the problems of the world and is there hope with the with the young people there's there's hope right there's yeah. got to be and people with, and with people like people you too. doing what you're doing yeah so <laughs> and with people like Tommy here okay so yeah well so keep an eye on the sky this is Joe Jordan and I'm Rachel Ann Goodman <laughs> and I'm Tommy Martin thank you for listening this has been Planet Watch for another week thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next week